Hi there, my name is Romana, and great that you are listening to Philosophy Explained. This podcast is focused on interesting philosophies, so you can find a true connection with yourself and the people around you. Are you ready to expand your vision on life and to be inspired? Then let's start. Last week, David Mark shared his life journey. As part of that, he told us how he experienced it to be a monk and why he decided to stop being a monk. He also shared some thoughts on why he thinks people nowadays feel so disconnected. This week, David tells us more about the Buddhist culture and how they deal with karma. I noticed as well in the Asian countries that Buddhists get a lot of, like monks specifically, get a lot of respect. How come that monks are so much, so, so respected? Oh, well, you see, um, traditionally, um, I think there are a couple of things going on here. Um, Even in the Buddhist time, uh, and what we find in India today, even though it's not a um, Buddhist country per se, the whole um, concept of abandoning the ordinary world and devoting one's life to spiritual practice. So we have the Buddhist monks in Buddhist countries. In in India, as an Indian uh, Hindu country, you have the sannyasi or the sadhus. But the idea is the same, and it it extends back to the time of the Buddha, even before the time of the Buddha, that in a deeply religious culture like that, those who give up worldly pleasure and worldly happiness in order to devote themselves to spiritual perfection uh, are considered to be very, very um, uh, honorable in that sense. You know, people understand it's a big sacrifice. It's not easy um, uh, to give up the pleasures of of life. And so people are respected for that. So just as part of the general culture, I think, in um, Indian society and therefore the influence it had on Buddhist culture, um, it, it's it's always been there. This 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 respect for those who are devoted to spiritual pursuits. In the context of Buddhism, spe- uh, more specifically, uh, <clears throat> the Buddha, you know, he was a young prince, as you know, you know the story of the Buddha, and he grew up with great wealth and and great comfort and affluence and. Uh, Uh, you know, lots of girlfriends and so on and so forth. And uh, he also took the aspect of abandoning uh, all of those pleasures, if you like, or the comfort of the royal household and um, uh, adopting the path of of a wandering mendicant, enduring many hardships and uh, established the order of Buddhist monks. So in in the Buddhist religion, you could say, or in the Buddhist spiritual tradition, uh, monks have always played a central role in the preservation, transmission, and propagation of the Buddhist teachings. In some traditions, especially... um, possibly what you're referring to, the traditions of Sri Lanka and Thailand and Burma and so forth in particular, it's actually considered um, necessary to become a monk 
in order to achieve spiritual perfection, enlightenment or like that. So a prerequisite is to become a monk. So in that culture, again, there's a special reverence for um, those who become monks, okay, because of that, that aspect. In our tradition, in our Mahayana, Tibetan, tradi Tibetan Mahayana tradition, actually, that's not the case, okay? It's not that one has to become a monk in order to become an enlightened being. It's a particular, um, what to say, uh, uh, way of practicing, and it comes up in a subsequent question that you, that you want to discuss, I think. Um, and it's a very powerful and effective um, way, but it's not the case that you have to be a monk in order to progress or on the spiritual path or even achieve enlightenment. Anybody can do that. Uh, a, lay, a layman, a laywoman, a monk or a nun, doesn't matter. But it is considered to be a, um, uh, a more potent and effective way for the most part to live one's life. So even there, different Buddhist cultures approach that in a different way. Still, even in our tradition, of course, the Sangha are considered to be, um, again, especially worthy of respect because of the vows they hold. And because again, they've given up ordinary life, no drugs, no sex, no rock and roll. I mean, that's being a little bit flippant and superficial, but you know what I mean? It's like the normal pleasures of life. They know monks don't go to bars drinking. They don't have girlfriends. They don't, uh, you know, they don't go to the beach and go to full moon parties or, you know, whatever you want to, but you know what I'm saying. They don't have families and so forth. Um, uh, there yeah. are different interpretations of what a good Buddhist is and what a good monk is then if you want to reach enlightenment, it differs per country and culture then how to reach that. Are these all different interpretations of the original material that Buddha, uh, Gautama Siddhartha Buddha spread it around during his time? Uh, this, of course, is something uh, uh, that is debated and, and discussed a lot within the different Buddhist traditions because, you know, we're not free of the fault of people from one tradition claiming that their tradition is better than, uh, well, actually, we are a little bit free of that because in our, in, 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 uh, when I speak of our tradition, you know, I'm always referring to the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. It's actually considered to be a great fault to criticize not just any other religion, but especially any other Buddhist practice. If it was taught, a practice taught by the Buddha, even if it a practice that is not central to one's own tradition, one must venerate that and never criticize. Um, but there is this difference in interpretation of the Buddhist scriptures. And if one uh, explores a little bit more the various um, ideas that prevail, some traditions, uh, they have a tendency to look at other traditions uh, as being inauthentic. Uh, so if one unfortunately finds this particularly with the, um, the traditions of Sri Lanka and Thailand and Burma, they have a tendency to be, although from our perspective, the Tibetan Buddhist perspective, they are authentic Buddhist traditions, they have a tendency to look at our ways of practice 
And um, many, not all, but many think it's uh, the, the teachings we follow weren't really taught by the historical Buddha, that they were sort of like a, a later adaptation. So it gets very complicated and very uh, complex. There's no, there's not really any uh, hostility uh, between the various traditions. We've never been to war with each other the way Catholics and Protestants have gone to war in Europe over, over the Christian doctrine. There are differences of opinion, but there is also a lot of core ideas fundamentally shared and agreed upon. And one of those, um, the most important perhaps, is the monastic tradition, where monks from our tradition and monks from any other Buddhist tradition, we share almost identical vows. And we have that, you know, that, that much in common. Philosophically, there are differences um, in our methodology, in, in the goals that we are seeking, and in the practices that we employ. But uh, there is a, a lot that's common as well. But all traditions, yes, they venerate not just monks, but the nuns as well. Yeah. yeah, it's also um, a human side of even monks that in some, to some extent, there might be still an ego that wants to be superior to others. And therefore, they see their, their practices as better than others because they're so confident in their own abilities to interpret it, the, the Buddha's teachings better. Oh, it can definitely happen. I think yeah. one thing we have to really point out, it's extremely important to make the, to, to, for people to understand that just because somebody is a monk or a nun or even a Buddhist, as the case may be, but let's say, you know, in the context, just because somebody is a Buddhist monk, it doesn't mean that they're a Buddha. It doesn't mean that they're enlightened, right? No. Buddhist monks still have attachment and desire and anger and selfishness and pride and jealousy, right? In that sense, we are also, sorry, we, I'm not a monk anymore, but in that sense, monks are also ordinary beings, okay? Yeah. So it's, earlier we were talking about one of the reasons I stopped being a monk is like, People sort of have some incredible expectation of you. They think because you're a monk, you're supposed to be perfect. Some monks are, are just terrible people and very, very badly behaved. Much worse Buddhists, maybe not even Buddhists, when you really understand what it means to be a Buddhist. Just because somebody is in robes or living in a monastery, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're working with their mind in a skillful way. Um, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily um, trying to, to develop their positive qualities. Monkhood can be a comfortable life. And that can be, a, you know, if you're in a, a wealthy monastery and you've got a, a responsible position, you've got a lot of power. Um, and it often misused. You stay in Thailand for any length of time. And every, every day you read an article in the newspaper about a monk who's been caught with a girlfriend in his room or, or at the casino or drunk or, you know, I mean, it's crazy stuff. So there yeah. are good monks and there are bad monks, just like there are good people and bad people. Yeah, I understand. Do you think there is anything that uh, Buddhist monks can learn from ordinary people who live in the Western world? Uh, well, I, I mean, it, 
in a general sense, I, I think we've always, if, if our mind is open, if we're humble enough, there's always something to learn from somebody. In a general sense, mm, I always had great admiration for um, people, lay people, who were married with a family and had an ordinary life. From one point of view, uh, from a monastic point of view, it's a little bit like that is a, um, that's about the worst thing you can do with your life. That's uh, a sort of like so complicated and involves so much entanglement with the world that it's precisely to avoid that, that one becomes a monk, okay? Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I think it would be so difficult to do that. And I know quite a few um, Buddhists who live that way, but are exemplary human beings and um, have accomplished a great deal with their lives in spite of, you know, as well as having a family and all of those responsibilities. So on one level, part of me reacts very strongly to that ordinary lifestyle. From another point of view, I, I've always admired those who have the strength and the courage to be able to do that, because I would never have been able to manage that. So in that sense, being a monk can be a little bit of a cop-out as well. You know what I mean? It can be running away from responsibility. But um, yeah. Run away know. from desires instead of facing them and learning how to deal with it, you mean? I think that's a possibility. I, I, I think that uh, uh, it's easy, especially if one becomes a monk at a young age or a nun at a young age, it's very easy not to, um, uh, I can't say if it's very easy, but I think it's possible that one does not grow um, uh, or mature in an emotional way. Whereas if one is in the world dealing with people and interpersonal relationships and intimate relationships, of course, many people in the world, they don't, they don't grow very much in, in, in their lives either. <laughs> but it can be a powerful catalyst, um, you know, responsibility. I think if one is um, in a, in a long-term relationship, especially if one has children, you have a responsibility to other people. And if, unless one is completely uh, uh, narcissistic or, or sort of uh, in some way psychologically uh, blocked, that has to lead to some sort of um, uh, 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 maturation as an individual. So it's, a, yeah. it's an interesting thing. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's quite interesting. Yeah, mm -hmm. interesting. In the question that you've written here, um, is, there's, there was something that I wanted to say, and it didn't come out in the way you phrased the question. You said, is there anything you think monks could learn from the Western world? And in one sense, we've discussed that just now. But one thing, one thing that I wanted to um, make a comment on um, in relation to that is that, um, and it may be a little bit tangential, but um, in my own path and in my own development as a, as a Buddhist and as a person, I've actually found some of the, um, I don't know the correct terminology, the methodologies or models or um, ideas, if you like, uh, that have evolved out of Western psychology. I found them to be personally very helpful and beneficial in my own development. 
So if we look at monks in a traditional um, sense, you, you know, uh, may, maybe again, it's a little bit different from um, for, for those who grow up in a Buddhist culture, because I think there's an innate sort of, um, uh, what to say, um, process of development that unfolds for the most part reasonably well. But I think as Western practitioners of Buddhism, although Buddhism in one sense is the perfect psychology, I think there are things that we can draw on and learn from uh, that haven't specifically evolved from within Buddhism itself, but through our own, um, you, you understand what I'm saying, uh, our own Life experience. psychological disciplines, you know, Freud and Jung. I mean, I'm not saying I'm a Freudian or a Jungian, but there are ideas out there. There are other methods out there that have been extremely beneficial and not just Western, other, other, uh, other sort of... Um, tools, if you like, that uh, can aid us in our spiritual and uh, psychological development that don't necessarily have a specific Buddhist reference. Yeah. So when you started living in the monastery, you came from a Western world in which you already had experienced a lot and knew how to deal with certain desires and how the world was working. So when you entered the monastery, you were someone who had totally different life experiences and therefore also other kinds of insight and knowledge. Do you feel, did you ever feel responsible for others in having to share your knowledge and your perspective and being even responsible for other people's feelings because you knew you could influence them by your teachings or your insights or your own behavior? Yeah, very much. I, uh, not so much in the monastery itself, because uh, when I when I first became a monk, as I explained earlier, and went to live in the monastery in France, I was the you know I was a new monk, and it was more a question of me drawing on the knowledge and wisdom and experience of some of the elder monks. It wasn't until I'd been a monk for maybe much later, you know, some years that I felt I had some sort of maturity and spiritual insight whereby I could, you know, comfortably um, use my life experiences to illustrate and, uh, and uh, uh, encourage people into a spiritual practice. But to some extent, you know, uh, it's those experiences that have allowed me to be uh, I don't want to say a good teacher, but occasionally an effective I teacher. teacher. I should say, perhaps it's fair to say, to the extent that I'm able to communicate Dharma um, well, and, and sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. There are times when I've made uh, terrible mistakes in the way I've communicated Dharma to people. But in those, those times where I've been effective and have been able to help people, it's, of course, it's, it's, it's a meeting of the two. It's the Buddhist philosophical and spiritual framework um, within which I'm living and, uh, and teaching. But it's my life experiences as a person, ordinary person growing up in Australia and, you know, doing the things that ordinary people do and uh, learning from them. That's what, in a sense, gives me my connection with people um, from my own culture. 
um, uh, or you know Western culture, uh, that, that sense of um, of uh, a shared experience in in a sense. So yeah, that's been very valuable, very important. And without that, um, I think one's limited uh, in what we can convey to people if we don't come from the same uh, cultural reference point or a similar cultural reference point, it's really difficult to understand the way people's minds work. So I see with Tibetan lamas, uh, many incredible Tibetan lamas, who, and they're great teachers of the Dharma in a formal sense, okay? And even I've met many lamas who I'm convinced have clairvoyance and psychic powers of one sort or another, and they know our minds very, very well. But there's still a limitation on the way they can communicate with Western students, not just because of language, sometimes that's not the problem, but because they didn't grow up in our culture. And so there's always going to be a little bit of a gap between what how they express the Dharma and how they understand the Dharma and how we as Westerners, um, if I can use that phrase, uh, uh, um, uh, interpret the Dharma and experience the Dharma. Yeah, it's interesting like that. Yeah, yeah, it is. When monks behave bad, badly in public, when they appear on the newspapers and when people start gossiping, do uh, do monks um, express their feelings towards one another about uh, resenting their behavior and like consequences that are that the monk has to face because he he behaves badly? Oh yeah, a, a, a monk can be expelled from his monastery, his or her monastery. In the case of a nun. Um, uh, if they misbehave inappropriately. At the same time, there's a lot of um, flexibility. One, one has to do pretty bad things to be expelled from the monastery. But even if one is expelled from the monastery, it doesn't mean you're not a monk anymore. Nobody can take monasticism away from you. You can, you can give it up voluntarily yourself but you can't, uh, nobody can come along. In, in Thailand, they do have a system where monks can be disrobed by what they call the Sangha Raja, the, 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 the leading monk in Thailand. But technically speaking, that can't be done. Uh, a monk or a nun can voluntarily give up their monastic vocation, but they can't be stripped of it. There's no overarching um, church, Buddhist church or hierarchy that really has the authority to do that. But monks can be reprimanded, you know, if, if one is a member of a monastery and one misbehaves, one can be reprimanded, um, rarely publicly, uh, because there's this understanding that, look, we're all, as you know, the, the Buddhist terminology, we're all in samsara, we've all got delusions, people make mistakes, people will make mistakes. Again, this idea of monks aren't perfect. It would be unrealistic to think that people won't make mistakes, but there's a limit. And so somebody might do something that's inappropriate, then a senior monk who's responsible for the dis discipline in the monastery, uh, he may speak to that monk privately and point out that that behavior isn't um, appropriate. 
and that they need to adjust their behavior. And if that monk adjusts their behavior in, in accordance with the monastic vows and the rules of the monastery, it's all gone, forgotten. You know, it's, it's not like, wow, he's a bad monk. He broke, he did something wrong. It's like, no, it's a gradual training over, over time, many, 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 many years. But if somebody continues to misbehave or if they misbehave in a way that's serious enough, then they can be told to leave the monastery and then they, they lose the, whatever benefits are, are associated with that. Um, but yeah, there are some, one hears terrible stories of monks mis misbehaving and, uh, and, and it, it's really unfortunate because uh, they bring great disservice, not just to themselves as human beings, but to the to the Buddhist uh, religion as well. And then, of course, uh, you know, again, it comes up in a later question. Um, we, you know, there's karma. If somebody really does something wrong, well, the person that they're harming more than anybody is themselves. So, in a way, they're to be. One, one, the, you know, other people, even if somebody has misbehaved in a really inappropriate way, rather than criticizing and abusing or looking to punish that person, it's more a question of developing compassion for them because the karma of that um, will bring very, very serious repercussions in future lives. Yeah. So um, let's talk a bit more about karma because. According to the wheel of life, we are now in the human realm in which our main challenge is desire. What if someone behaves in a, in, in a way that others perceive as bad, but it's actually based on ignorance or he has a certain intention that was not related to doing harm, but at the end he was actually um, hurting people. Would you say that that would still cause bad karma? Uh, generally, karma is um, determined by the intention with which an action um, uh, is formed. So that's why we say, uh, of course, ignorance informs all of our actions on one level. That's, that's just the, um, <clears throat> that's the shortcoming of being an unenlightened being. To a greater or lesser extent, we are all under the influence of ignorance. And that's why it's so easy and, uh, to create negative karma. But to get a, uh, a negative karmic consequence from an action, it must be motivated um, by um, a strong delusion, such as anger or hatred, uh, selfishness. Uh, and so forth, okay? So somebody might be motivated um, out of kindness and compassion, but still do an action which is, from a Buddhist point of view, karmically negative. So we could say it's a wrong action, but the consequences of that action may be very light or maybe non-existent because the motivation was good. So one example, is the uh, is um, when we put a, an animal, an injured animal, uh, to sleep. This often comes up in our classes, of course. We 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 you know we what we're actually doing. I mean, sorry to be a little blunt, but we're killing the animal, right? We take our dog because he's been run over by a car. We take our animal 
uh, we take our dog to the vet and the vet said, oh, he's so badly injured, we have to put him to sleep. Well, it's a nice way of saying we have to kill him, right? And that's mm -hmm. what we're doing. But our motivation isn't anger and hatred and you know, a, a desire to cause harm. Actually, our motivation is unbearable compassion, really, right? So we can't bear to see the animal suffering, so we'll put it out of its misery like that. And it's a really complicated situation. The, the motivation is good. But in Buddhist way of thinking, okay, it's still a negative action because we've terminated the life of a living being. Now, it's a very controversial uh, point, but it does illustrate what we're talking about, that the motivation can be good, but the action can still be considered harmful or negative. Now that in itself is a, this very point is a, is a, uh, is something that we could discuss for an hour or more and often do in our classes, we, we won't go into it. But if the action on the other hand, you know, there's a dog that our neighbor's dog is barking and uh, it irritates us and we get really angry. And so one day we go, we, I don't know, we get a, a gun, for example, or a big knife and we go next door with a dog and we're motivated by anger. This is, I hate that dog. It keeps barking all the time. And then we chase the dog down and we shoot it and kill it, right? That it's is totally a very, very heavy negative action because the motivation is bad. So motivation determines um, to a large extent whether an action is uh, has a positive or a negative um, outcome. But it's yeah. very complex. But karma is one of the most complicated subjects in Buddhism. We actually create karma with our, with, our, with our body, okay? So with physical actions, we were just talking about the action of killing, that's karma of, um, uh, of, of the body in the sense that it's, uh, uh, it's created using our physical body, okay? But we also have karma created by speech such as when we abuse people uh, or criticize people and hurt people with our words, okay? And there's also karma of the mind. So if we generate really strong thoughts of anger and hatred towards somebody and we imagine them sort of experiencing great harm, okay, it's also negative karma. It's not as negative karma as not as negative as the karma of killing somebody, but it does create a, 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 an imprint in the mind of, of, of non-virtue, we say. So the determinant factor in, in karma is does the action, mental, verbal, or physical, does it cause harm to another person? Or does it harm one's own, does it harm oneself? Or does it bring benefit? and happiness to another person. If it brings harm to others, it's going to be a negative karmic uh, consequence. If it brings happiness to others, uh, it will be, generally speaking, a, a virtuous karma like that. What, is the, what are the next steps to get rid of that karmic imprint? Mm. Well, it's interesting, although, um, uh, you know, we, we, we try to, as well as we can, observe the, the uh, as I mentioned before, very complex, complex teachings on the law of, laws of karma, and we try to avoid creating negative karma as much as possible. 
uh, it's we also understand that as ordinary sentient beings it's inevitable that we will create negative karma so you know a couple of things that even when we make mistakes and do things which are uh, considered to be inappropriate or negative actions things that may even harm other people we don't beat ourselves up about it too much we don't think oh it doesn't matter it does matter but we also understand well i'm a deluded sentient being i'm not perfect i'm going to make a lot of mistakes and create a lot of negative karma between now and when i achieve enlightenment so it's like we don't freak out about it but what we do and what or at least what we should do we should have enough mindfulness to recognize oh i just did something that hurt another person it was a mistake or you know i was upset i was angry you know whatever i've done something inappropriate well if it's to another person and we can we can apologize as a first step and try to sort of hey i'm really sorry i was just i'm really tired i'm really irritated i'm really angry at the moment and you know you copped a blast and i really apologize for that right we try to make amends just as anybody would um, but we don't sort of think, oh, I'm the worst person in the world, I'm the worst Buddhist in the world because I got angry or I got upset or I made a mistake like this. Like, uh-oh, I made a mistake. We do what we can to, um, what to say, make it right. But in terms of karmic consequences, we apply uh, uh, one of the purification practices. Um, the recitation of mantras or prostrations or even having the mind of regret. Oh, I'm so sorry I said that, or I'm so sorry I did that. I, I've created negative karma. I've hurt somebody. And I'm really, even if we're not able to formally apologize to that person, in our mind and in our heart, we can sort of send out this, this, this almost like a prayer or this energy, if you like, of... Um, you know, uh, forgiveness and apology, and I made a mistake, I was wrong, I'll be more careful in the future. But there are specific practices that the Buddha taught for purifying negative karma. So in those uh, cases where we have done something wrong and made a mistake, it's like, okay, you know, don't worry too much, purify and do better next time, like that. Now, exactly what practices we should do, uh, how many of them, um, and so on and so forth, that can be a little more difficult to understand. And sometimes that's one of the main reasons we consult our spiritual teachers um, for advice on how to purify negative karma. But in a general way, uh, there are many practices that the Buddha taught that uh, purify karma. The recitation of the Om Mani Pemi Hung mantra, for example, very famous, the, the mantra of compassion. Um, uh, there are specific what we call purification practices involving mantras and prostrations and visualizations and so forth. Um, any virtuous action um, uh, can be an antidote to negative karma. Say, for example, um, we, you know, at, at an earlier stage in our life, we stole money from somebody. Okay, generally the negative karma of stealing, like that. One antidote, one way of making um, amends for that, as well as uh, generating the mind of regret for having done that, 
Um, maybe we can track that person down and apologize and return the money with interest, okay? But maybe that's not possible either. But maybe we can then make charity to those who are less fortunate than ourselves and, and, and sort of try to purify the negative karma we've created in the past um, with a virtuous action like that. So uh, it's possible to purify karma. And so we don't worry too much about it. No, we, we worry, but not too much. These um, uh, songs that you're singing for purifying the mind, what is the thought behind that? Is it the kind of vibration that you're spreading around in your body that you believe in has a positive effect? Or the is mantras, it like yes. the, the, yeah, okay. And the power of exactly repeating that. it so that you start believing in what it is and make it part of yourself? No, I think this is um, uh, earlier on in the first interview, I was talking a little bit about the magical side of Buddhism. Well, this is, uh, this is an aspect of that. It's sort of magical and, and in a way perhaps not, but mantra uh, Sanskrit syllables. And when they're recited, uh, it creates a certain vibration. Okay, a certain energy, if you like. Well, I used to have a lot of, it used to puzzle me, how is it that the recitation of a mantra can purify karma or do anything? And there are all sorts of different mantras for all sorts of different purposes, not just the purification of karma. But if you think about it, the universe is vibration, right? We think of ourselves as being solid, but if you check who we are or what our computer is, on one level, we and everything else is like it's an accumulation of atoms and molecules and subatomic particles, right? And the more you look, the less physical um, substance is there. The deeper you look into things, whatever we're, we're really talking about, the, the, the more subtle it becomes. And atoms and molecules and subatomic particles, they're just, it's just energy buzzing around in a certain way. And that energy itself has a certain vibration, right? So in one sense, you can say the universe is energy and vibration. And once we sort of come to some sort of um, recognition that that in fact is true, then, um, it's not so difficult to understand that certain energies can affect what we're experiencing. So that let's say the recitation of a particular mantra, which itself is a vibration and creates a certain type of energy can therefore affect our mind, which is also energy. Do you see what I mean? So in the, it's sort of magical in a way, but from another point of view, it's also a little bit logical if you accept certain uh, certain propositions. So, it, and it doesn't even have to be to do with whether one believes it or not. It's, it's mantra can be incredibly powerful. And one doesn't even have to be a Buddhist, just reciting the mantra because of the effect that that energy of sound and, and, and vibration has, it can impact our experience um, in profound ways. Yeah, it makes me think about uh, the talk I had with a priest in Bali when I, vi I visited Bali after going to Nepal. And mm. he told me that there is this meditation form in which you say the word Om 
and uh, for for men it sounds like much more with much more vibration because you have a low, lower voice <laughs> <laughs> but he said that the the point behind it was that if you're saying om that you have to uh, have many years of experience in meditation because he says that it's such a heavy effect on your body because it's kind your body is heating up by it you are going through all these these um, very deep emotions and feelings that you have to that you're starting to face in order for yourself to kind of clean yourself from it just by mm -hmm. using the word mm -hmm. om in a, mm -hmm. with a very mm -hmm. low voice <laughs> yeah it's, it's very a, interesting a, yeah one uh, well, it, it's a similar idea. Of course, Om is just one of the first syllables in in all of the Buddhist mantras. All, all of the mantras begin with Om. So we don't. That, that's a more of a Hindu practice, I think. But they also use mantras as we do. Um, and even in the Catholic tradition, I don't know if you're familiar with it or not. Um, you know, when people, there was this tradition, still is this tradition of people going to confession once a week, and you know, in the privacy of confession, uh, announcing to the priest um, the, the mistakes they've made, their sins, they, they, they may call them, right? The faults or the harms that they've inflicted on, on others. Um, and it's very common for the, uh, for the priest to give them the practice of reciting what's called the Hail Mary, which is like a prayer to Mother Mary as a penance for, um, uh, to purify the karma, like that. So it's a, it's a practice, and, and I'm sure other religious traditions also have their own methods for helping people purify and resolve um, uh, mistakes that they have made. So, but of course, in the Hindu and the Buddhist traditions in particular, this idea of specific Sanskrit mantras um, that again create a certain vibration, affect the body, and affect the mind, and can even affect the outside world. Let's say that um, you have meditated a lot to get more wisdom and compassion. You are trying to good, do good in the world and trying to make up for hurting other people around you. And at some point, it's probably like a huge step. I'm like now saying it as if it's like a small step, it's probably a huge step, but then at some, some point you reach enlightenment. So the whole thing about enlightenment is that you kind of exit the wheel of life, of mm -hmm. the, um, the ever-changing continuum of life. What happens then? Do you never live anymore? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I'm not enlightened. I, I mean, <laughs> philosophically speaking, an enlightened being, you know, it's, again, uh, I speak from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, the Mahayana, what we call the Mahayana perspective. Enlightened beings, it's not like they cease to exist. It's not like their mind somehow comes to an end. What they have is an, an enlightened mind, and uh, an enlightened mind is uh, considered to be an omniscient mind. I don't know if you know the word omniscient, all-seeing and all-knowing, like that. So, in a sense, a, a Buddha's mind, Buddha enlightenment, uh, to awaken, to become enlightened, it's not something small. I mean, the word is used in 
all the time in different spiritual traditions. And it means different things to different people. So we have to define it very carefully. In the Buddhist tradition, enlightenment is synonymous with omniscient mind, full and complete awakening Buddhahood. It's something massive. It means an enlightened being's mind basically pervades the universe. And even we talk about all sorts of extraordinary qualities, such as uh, an enlightened being seeing and experiencing past, present, and future simultaneously, knowing all of the thoughts of living beings. It's, it's possible for an enlightened Buddha to sort of come into this world as a human being um, and look like an ordinary human being and behave like an ordinary human being, but have the mind of a Buddha. So that was it for today. In the last part of this three-piece interview with David Marks, we will be diving deeper into modern problems. We will discuss things such as how to deal with negative emotions and how to make inner progress in a world that does anything to distract us. I hope this episode challenged your mind and I'd love to hear what you think about this philosophy. If you'd like to, you can visit my website www.thetrueconnection.com Here you find many more articles and podcast episodes focused on self-development. Did you like this episode? Don't forget to follow this podcast. Thank you for listening to Philosophy Explained and hopefully until next time.